to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ and I'm the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. And internationally renowned published author uh with a major 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 publisher just dropping that in there kind of yeah casually. not to toot my own horn but you know some of us have uh, have stories published with dark horse now so <laughs> i'm a pretty big deal i don't know if you know that john uh you're certainly um the biggest deal in this podcast i i, I would certainly say i'm uh, i'm overjoyed for you pj and i understand uh, you now have your your uh, complimentary uh, copy as well i do have a copy of the uh, the dark horse pride omnibus uh which includes like six pages that I wrote. And I have to say, it's a very good looking book. It's a lovely paper stock and it's so weird. I've only found out when I got my copy that my name is on the back cover. <gasps> Gasp. Yeah, it talks about, um, you know, Joe Glass created the Pride, writes a whole load of stories with a whole load of artists. And then plus, and because there's only three extra writers, it listed all three of us. So it's myself, oh. Mike Garley and Cena Grace are wow. all listed on the back cover as well. Nice, nice, nice. Who'd have thought, PJ, when we were when we were once so so young and and full of um, vim and vigor, and, and all we had was a a, a dream and a, a twinkle in our eyes that uh, one day that dream would be fulfilled and the twinkle would have died. <laughs> I, I have to say, it, there is a small part of this that is slightly dream come true stuff. For I mean, you know, it's it's fantastic that. I have a story that has been published by Dark Horse. Genuinely, I can't quite get over that. But one of the biggest things about this for me is I'm sure I've mentioned before on the podcast that a long time ago, I, I had a Saturday job working in Waterstones. And I worked there for two years and uh, thoroughly enjoyed my time there. And then I left to go to university. But it sort of became my ambition that one day I'd have something on a shelf in Waterstones Waterstones are stocking the Pride Omnibus, so that's oh, happened now. <laughs> do, you want, do you want to hear something uh, heartbreaking? Not really, because I'm feeling okay, quite good sorry. at the moment. But... <laughs> yeah, rude... I um, I uh, I I live in I live in Cheltenham uh, in the UK, and Cheltenham has a uh, world famous literature festival, like mm-hmm. you do. And I think a couple of, it was a couple of years ago now. I I spoke. I, I, I not in the. I'm not talking like pyramid stage, not headline. I'm, we're talking like the kind of fifteenth smallest stage. But I did a little talk about you know my comics and whatnot, which I was you know felt very proud about. And uh, our local Waterstones uh, got my book in so that I could do signings and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I signed one. Let's say one proud copy. 
Uh, and, uh, and then after the show, I, 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 a few days later, I walked to the local Waterstones just, and I was like, I can't wait. I want, I can't wait to see my book on the shelf. And, I, and that's going to be, I'm going to be so proud. <laughs> I'm going to be like PJ is now. And I couldn't find it anywhere. And I checked with them and they were like, oh yeah, we only got it in for the, the festival. Uh, and then we sent it back to... <laughs> Ooh. to the warehouse. I was like, oh no. <laughs> Lo- local author. Yeah, do, do they not have a local authors section? Because they couldn't just put it in there? Um, You'd think, wouldn't you? Apparently, I, I did inquire, apparently uh, you have to have written a book about the local area to be featured. That makes sense, actually, because the only book I remember having in the... Uh, I worked in the branch in Dorking, where I grew up, which was the smallest branch that wasn't a university bookshop in the country at the time. Huh. And the only book in our local authors section was the Box Hill Book of Box, which was a book about the box trees on nearby Box Hill. <laughs> I, um... Well, I'll tell you what, PJ, as soon as uh, I finish my uh, comics walking guide to Cheltenham, <laughs> uh, I will finally have, have have reached those dizzy heights. <laughs> um, well, speaking of books, PJ, have you been uh, have you been reading anything lately? Have you been consuming anything of interest? Um, I've been on my big Terry Pratchett reread. I'm rereading all of his books because so after after Pratchett died, I'm a, I've been a big fan for a long time, and I couldn't really bring myself to read the books I hadn't read. I didn't want to not have any Terry Pratchett left to read. So last year I decided, you know what, I'm going to just read all of his books in publication order, starting from the beginning, and then I'll get to the ones I haven't read at some point, and I will just go through and, and get it all finished. So I'm, I've been doing that for a long time now, and I am current. I just finished reading Small Gods, and Ooh, I had forgotten yeah. how good that book is that is a stunning piece of work and uh, i am now about halfway through the carpet people which is a lot of fun so yeah because you because yeah i've been following your journey online actually and uh i love pratchett uh much like yourself and uh i've read um you know some of his non-discworld stuff so um uh, uh Strata and mm. uh the dark side of the sun Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Read both of those. Liked those, but I haven't read any of like the carpet people or um, truckers and or diggers. That sort oh, of thing. Oh, you must read truckers, diggers, and wings. Those three books. Are, that is a stunning trilogy of books. Huh. Ah, well, good, good recommendation. Um, it, it's it's funny actually. Like, um, you know, uh, you, you you talk about like kind of writers that inspired you, and ov- obviously, like. Um, you know, here we are doing a, a Morrison-themed podcast. So I think Morrison is 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 the writer that has inspired me the most in my life. Like, really made me want to kind of write comics. But it's funny, like Pratchett has always been there, mm. like in my life. And it's actually the more I think about it, the more I kind of realize, and I've realized this in recent years. That I think um, if I've not been directly aping Pratchett, I've been kind of like thinking about him a lot like while I write like his humor his his humanity at the same time um very yeah may astonishingly talented but Discworld has changed my life I think I I would say the same I think I never when I talk about people who influence my writing I never mention 
Terry Pratchett, even though I would probably say he's my favourite author, mm. because I just feel like he's so far beyond anything I could do that to say he's an influence on me almost feels a bit insulting to him in a weird oh. way. I'm sure, because I've read so much of it and it just creeps in by osmosis, that he, he almost certainly is an influence on the stuff I write, but... I could never quite bring myself to say that because I feel like that's doing him a disservice in a weird way. I always wanted to, in my think, I think in my more pretentious moments, I always want. I I remember thinking that like, I'd love to, kind of think like Morrison, and I'd like to kind of feel, like Pratchett, mm. in a way, because like um. And I, by feel, I, I literally mean to like to like care. I think as much as Pratchett did, because like I think um, Sam Vimes is possibly like his favorite, possibly my favorite character of his. And like Pratchett could at times be like very, I think, kind of angry at humanity, yes. like oh, angry. Yes, Small Gods felt like a very angry book to me. Yeah, I, I know, and and the fact that like he could like just be so frustrated with people, but never stop caring. Hmm. And I think Sam Vimes, and again, if anyone listening hasn't read the Discworld books, or, or particularly the the City, the Night Watch kind of books, and and Sam Vimes, the kind of eternal policeman, I mean. Yeah, like those books have have moved me to tears at times. Like not because it's, you know, um, obviously like moving stuff, but because it's just so. I don't know. I, perhaps it kind of gets under my skin. You know, somebody caring so damn hard that I don't know they'll kick someone in the face if they need it. It's uh, it's the witches' books that get to me like that. Granny Weatherwax is probably my favourite character from oh, from wow. the Discworld series, and and I, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely love because the witches' books play with the ideas of storytelling and fairy tales and and magic and and fantasy stories, and and that is something that really appeals to me as a as a writer myself. It because mm. it's the kind of stuff I love to write. Is a good fantasy story, and yeah, the, the way he plays with that with the witches, I, I absolutely love. Do you ever feel that, like, I, I think there was like a famous quote of Pratchett's from like some interview he did that did the rounds after he died, and uh, it was uh, a critic or or the person reviewing him being a little um, sniffy, for lack of a better word, mm. about genre fiction. You know, going like you know, if you're you're clearly a very talented and, and prolific writer, so why don't you write, quote unquote, proper books? Yeah, you know, and um, and he has some wonderful things to say on it, and it's kind of interesting because in many ways, like he's one of the greatest writers I feel that our our little island has produced, and it's weird that he's not recognised as a quote-unquote proper writer he's recognized as a a niche fantasy writer in a way yeah yeah it's like i i managed to sneak a tribute to him into the trolltooth wars graphic novel <laughs> um there is a little terry pratchett easter egg in there that it's not too difficult to find but um that i'm very glad we managed to sneak in but one of the things that i'm actually proudest of with having my name on the Trolltooth Wars is that it's it's a fighting fantasy adaptation it's an official fighting fantasy product it's part of that world and one of the other writers who has worked in that world in the last 10 years is Rihanna Pratchett 
she has released her own fighting fantasy book that she wrote that I had a lot of fun playing. <laughs> um, but it, it, it makes it feel like I almost do have that connection. Um, and it's very tenuous. I'm aware of that. But it's it's just in my head and in my heart, it's nice to have. And because I agree, I think he's he's certainly my favorite author and writer. Uh, I mean, obviously, sadly, no longer living today, but that was alive in my lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, that must be weird, actually, actually, because, yeah, so many of our kind of literary greats are beyond us. You know, you're never going to get the chance to, uh, to uh, you know, kind of walk up to them and, and say hello now, which is which is kind of heartbreaking. Actually, mm. I, was, I was thinking the other day that, like, there's an ever dwindling likelihood that I will meet some of my heroes, you know. Just with yeah. the the logistics of of geography and and, and time, basically, I, I think you know it's very unlikely that I'm I'm, I'm ever gonna you know bump into Grant Morrison in a pub somewhere. <laughs> I th- I think uh, statistically that's probably quite <laughs> that's quite improbable. I would say, um, yeah, that made me a little sad. I was like, ah, you know, I I did have the good fortune of meeting Terry Pratchett twice at signings. Really? Yeah, yeah, the, twice he did signings in Cardiff. Once for the release of Thief of Time. And then for the release of, oh, not the We Free Men. It was one of the Tiffany Aching books that came after. Maybe the oh, second one. I can't remember. What, what, Shepherd's of, Crown? Yeah, it might have been Hatful of Sky or Shepherd's yeah. Crown, I yeah. think it was. Wow. Um, and he, yeah, he was lovely, genuinely gracious, had time for everyone, would talk to everyone who, who came over to him. Very funny man as well. And yeah, I'm very lucky to have, uh, to have had that, I think. Do you feel, um, you know... It's kind of weird, like, because I think if 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 um if I was if I was meeting with quote unquote normal people, <laughs> uh, I'm going to say quote unquote a lot this episode, but you know what I mean, like, you know, if you're if you're outside your kind of comicy kind of circles or whatever, and you you're talking literature, and somebody said, you know, well, who's your who's your favorite writer? I think if I said Terry Pratchett, I think there might be a kind of like, oh yes, I've heard of him. You know, hmm. or certainly, I think if I said Neil Gaiman, you know, I think, you know, he's kind of well known outside his circles. Um, I think if I said Grant Morrison, I don't. I, I think, and I mean no disservice. I just, I don't think the average person would know who the hell I was talking about. It's weird, isn't it? Like, I think. Yeah. Are, are there any? What? Well, who are the transcendental kind of comic writers who have? I don't know. I'm not saying they've left the craft behind, but who have just suddenly who have gained kind of wider acclaim. Is it is it Alan Moore basically? Well, I, Alan Moore and and Gaiman, I think, are probably it. And even then, Alan Moore hasn't really written anything outside of comics. It's just that his comic work sort of became more than the medium. Mm. Yeah, they were. Well, you know, for better or for worse, that was when comics were suddenly serious and art weren't they it's when yeah yeah it's it's, it's complex isn't it because i like uh, i like a lot of alan moore's stuff but it's very hard to enjoy it in a vacuum now because yes. you you're forever kind of facing w- what it became rather than what it was in the moment sort yeah. of thing um i do very much like uh promethea which is uh Later series he did. I haven't that very- read it. 
I enjoy, I enjoy it. It's basically like there comes a point where the plot gets completely sidelined because uh, Mr. Moore decides that he wants to take you on like a 15-episode <laughs> deep dive into his theory of magic, which is fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> it, I, I love it. Um, but yes, I, it's, uh, it's, it, it becomes less so much... Uh, 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 a comic at that point and more of a grim grimoire I would say <laughs> I think if there's any other the only other name I can think of who potentially might be known to certain people outside of comics is it's Frank Miller off the back of the Sin City movies and he directed that god awful spirit adaptation as well oh, um, god, from about yeah. 12, 15, 12 13 years ago so that was that was terrible I um, haven't seen it but I, I've seen footage of it and it, it's kind of like it's the kind of footage that makes you think, is this a joke? Like, I can't believe this was a real movie. Yeah, it is one of the worst things I've ever seen in the cinema. Well, I mean, he got his, he got his dollar out of you, didn't he? Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> he got, he so, got you through you know, the who's door, the bigger yeah. f- Me, I'm the chump. That's who's the chump in this one. <laughs> I suppose you've got... It's, it's, I don't know, it's weird, isn't it? Because you've got... I suddenly can't for the life of me. Is it Brian K. Vaughan I'm thinking of who wrote uh, Why the Last Man? Yes, yeah. Brian K. Vaughan is an interesting one because he is uh, very busy, always working. I think consistently puts out kind of like excellent stuff. But isn't, I would say, a comic celebrity in kind of the same way that some of the other names we've mentioned are? No, which is weird because he has done a lot of stuff for TV and things. Like he was on the Lost writing team for yes. years, so it's and weird that he hasn't sort of broken out. And I wonder if it's because he's too busy, <laughs> and, I, and I wonder if it's because he's got his foot in the TV world as well. Yeah, because it's like he's not maybe chasing accolades in the comics world because he's too busy like writing for TV and just being a writer, like just kind of getting the job done. Mm-hmm. I suppose. There is one more name I've thought of, and I can't believe it. Yeah, Stan Lee, obviously. <laughs> Who? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose. I suppose. <laughs> to the point where he cameoed in the Teen Titans animated movie. So. Yeah, yeah. I guess. I guess it I guess it would have to yeah, yeah, I would it would have to be the old Lee, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? It's like there's not enough room in in the greater comics mythology for two Stan Lee esque characters. No, God no. If you know what I mean. I don't think the world is big enough for two kind of Stan Lee. Because again, someone like um Jack Kirby or you know Steve Ditko maybe like both both um, enormously influential but also it would seem very private people who uh didn't have the promotional skills of say Stan Lee mm. and so haven't achieved that kind of wider cultural relevance like obviously like revered within certain comic circles but yeah yeah it's a funny yeah. old beast isn't it yeah that's why we do podcasts as well as comics. Get the name. Yes. Out there. <laughs> well, you see, our 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 digital legacy, PJ, will echo for all time throughout the stars. Like even now, you know. Well, I say not now. This episode hasn't been published yet. 
No, well, if you're listening to it, it has been. At the time of recording, <laughs> it hasn't. But you know, when, some of those, some of that electromagnetic radiation is escaping out into space. You know, there might be distant civilizations that will one day, one day hear us talking about. Uh, well, the the wonders we're about to talk about. They won't know what the JLA is, but they'll find the podcast, and it will make them curious. And ancient eyes, long blind turned their uh, malevolent gaze towards Earth. We may have doomed a future civilization, PJ. I mean, that's their problem. Yeah, yeah. Screw future generations. <laughs> I'm going to go um, spray some aerosol out into the atmosphere. Um, I just realised, and again, because my brain is like a sieve, um, our little conversation at the start about other leading names in comics was actually weirdly prescient it was it, i thought that as we were as we were discussing it i didn't mean to lead us down that road when i mentioned terry pratchett but now i think about <laughs> it it was sort of inevitable and um it's quite kind of fitting when are we ever gonna get the uh rinkswind jla crossover crossover that we've all been crying out for i mean never because no one except pratchett is allowed to write that character that is true Anyway, PJ, did you know that we have finally reached episode issue, sorry, issue 22 of the main JLA series? So even though this is episode 35 of our podcast, uh, we're not even two years into the main run of the series. Oh my God, we're not. We took a lot of detours. (laughs) It felt like we spent so much longer than that with Electric Blue Superman, but no, we didn't. We really didn't. It is wild, isn't it, actually, come to think of it? Yeah, because we only just lost the big the big blue and white wonder. Mm. So he turned up in Woman of Tomorrow. Issue 5. So it was May 97 through to uh, uh, July 98. 13... Yeah. Th- wow, yeah. No, no, wait. Yep. Yeah, what's that? 13... June, uh, May, issue June. nineteen was his last appearance in JLA, wasn't it? Yeah. So there you go. Wow. Yeah. So barely a year. Weird, isn't it? Wow. Anyway, so uh, what's the lay of the land, PJ? Because this is in many ways a bit of a bit of a return to, well, hesitate to say status quo, but you know, Morrison's back. Yeah, well, we spent the last uh, last four episodes discussing the the four feeling issues that were written by Mark Wade. The first two parter, still illustrated by Howard Porter, that uh, was sort of Wade doing a sort of Morrison esque story about probability and and synchronicity that had some very good ideas, even if mo- some of the execution may be slightly not up to the very high standards that we have for this book. <laughs> and then switched up then to a really fun two-parter illustrated by Arnie Jorgensen which guest starred Adam Strange and was just sort of a classic alien invasion Adam Strange betrays the Justice League but not really story that was yeah it was it was when you look back at the four issues it's a really interesting diversion actually and then to get Morrison back here and I'm going to go out on this now and and this might be my favorite story in the entire run that we're about to look at this two-parter uh but to get Morrison back and Porter back at the same time, there's there's something very special about this issue. I think I yeah, like, got to say, you know, didn't hate the preceding four four issues at all. You mm, know, no. they're perfectly respectable for what they are. I just 
you know, I'm here for the Morrison baby. And, you know, and, and Prometheus was a lot of fun. And then, you know, presumably uh, Morrison had to go bathe in a Lazarus pit to, you know, replenish their, their wonders for, you know, four months or so. And they returned renewed for, yeah, this absolute gem of a two-parter. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not, I'd hesitate to say it's my absolute favourite, if only because uh, I don't know what my favourite is. There's a lot to choose from, but <laughs> I love this two-parter. It's fantastic. It's yeah. This is I'm being so excited about getting to this point. Yeah, and there's some. If you haven't read the series before and you're reading along for the first time with us, then this issue. Oh boy, I bet you you were shocked. All <laughs> very confused. You never or, know. Yeah. Well, first time I read it, I was a bit confused. Um. Well, should we should we dive in, PJ? Should we just go for it? I want to start with the cover uh, this today because I think it's a lovely cover. So you've got a, a glass globe sort of half filled with sand and in the sand, just sort of half buried, are the sleeping forms of Superman, Wonder Woman and Green Lantern. And the globe is being held in, in the white hand of a figure who we can only just sort of see their hand, a bit of their arm, a white white shoulder and white flowing hair. A weird observation, PJ, because I agree it's a very nice cover, but um, it actually kind of struck me recently that Kyle has been appearing on a lot more of the covers. Yes, he has actually, hasn't he? There's growing popularity of the character given the time period, I wonder. There's a story reason for it on this cover as well, though. These three characters Mm. um, will... There's a story reason why it's these three characters together on the cover. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, And... I agree. It's it's a great cover, and I'm always happy to see Kyle as well doing his thing, yeah. sleeping. <laughs> Lazy old Kyle. Um, now, PJ, I, I hope your brain is ready because I'm probably going to have a lot of questions for you. You know, I'm going to I'm going to pick that uh, that uh, encyclopedia of a brain of yours. Oh God. Okay, I'll do my best. Okay, if you're primed, we should uh, we should begin. Let's let's do it. Let's get into it. Okay, so we we open in uh well, I guess uh I guess it's just small town America, shall yeah. we say. Yeah. Uh and we're following uh, a young boy called Michael Haney or or Haney, I suppose. Haney, perhaps. Haney. Haney, yeah. And uh he seems troubled. And also there seem to be a few kind of weird things about the world like uh most noticeably uh i I think he's walking past a church and there seems to be a kind of weird symbol atop the church knocks uh not a classic kind of uh, crucifix as you might expect it's a little unusual it's a it's a big old green star looking thing with a red Red eye type thing in the centre of it, and uh, Michael also says in his uh, his dialogue that he uh, forgot the words of the Pledge of Allegiance today. I pledge allegiance to the Conqueror. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, you know, he's a bit forgetful, isn't he, silly boy? <laughs> um, and yeah, he's tormented by the idea that um, something's not right with the world. Uh, he thinks something is missing. Um, you know, he said there should be lights in the sky, there should be sonic booms on city streets and strange aircraft glimpsed between buildings. There should be something more 
than there is. Hmm. And then quite sinisterly, it says, and it watches, it knows, as we see presumably Michael's father sat on an armchair staring at a TV, which again is just showing this red-eyed green starfish. Yeah, so... Uh, and and uh, Michael kind of like, I guess, retreats up to his room, mm-hmm. and then we, we just get the reverse shot of his dad watching TV, uh, looking kind of like zombified for like lack of a better word just kind of staring kind of blank faced at this image uh it's very twilight zone very yeah. uh, unsettling yeah and uh michael starts drawing superheroes basically essentially he draws green lantern he draws the flash symbol and he sort of seems to be trying to draw superman but he's also it is trying to stop him and you just get this huge panel of this giant evil red eye at the bottom of the page that is is genuinely unsettling oh yeah and yeah because even like uh talking just in the language of comics uh it's uh that final panel of the eye it's a full page image it's a splash image bleeding right off the page and the preceding images are like these little kind of floating panels at the mm. top of the page so not only is it a massive close-up of the eye it's like it's I don't know. It's like it's literally outside the world, kind of looking in. It's it is deeply unsettling, actually. Like it. Kudos to uh, Howard Porter. It is. It's not nice. And then the next page is another splash, and it's just Michael's drawing. He's drawing Superman. We see his picture of Superman, a classic big blue red cape. But the S logo is wrong. It's it's the diamonds there, but then there's just two little patches of, of yellow. He doesn't have the S. And this is where we just get the title. The title is simply It. <laughs> and credits, Grant Morrison writer, Howard Porter Penciler, John Del Inca, Kenny Lopez Letterer, Pat Garrahy Colorist, Heroic Age Separator, L.A. Williams Assistant Editor, and Dan Raspler Editor. And then we get a roll call. Not to be... I just have to say, PJ, It, not to be confused with if who we've previously met yes this is something different also not to be confused with it who do the computers for the justice league no that 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 is true that is true um uh and uh the jla roll call which for some reason has left out the it department uh (laughs) is uh superman wonder woman zoriel martian manhunter green lantern aquaman hey he's back flash and batman and again i think uh I think you mentioned on a previous uh, episode, PJ, how, um, you know, we talked about how the league is now massive. There's like 14 members. Uh, And yeah, I think you rightly pointed out that Morrison rarely uses all 14 at once. You know, they kind of like contrive a lot of situations to have like, here's, here's one group, here's another group, like just going for like kind of interesting combinations to match the situation. Certainly in these smaller one- and two-part stories, he tends to pare them down. When you get into the larger stories, three three or more parts, then you do tend to get all the league, though, again, they will splinter off and be doing different things. But, yeah, this is this is another case of, of only using so many of the characters. Uh, seven, in fact. Could I, uh, can I bring up a couple of uh, points at this point? Things that spring to mind? You can. Okay, so this is a bit meta-commentary. Here, and I could be wrong, but uh, Morrison 
has repeatedly, across their work, come back to the idea of um, a future Superman. Yes. Or indeed many Supermen. Uh, and uh, both in the pages of All-Star Superman and the upcoming JLA 1 million, which we're going to touch upon on this series, uh, we've met the character of Cal Kent, who is the Superman of, I can't remember the exact year, but far, 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 far in the future. I think he's just referred to as Superman 1 million normally, isn't he? There we go. Yeah, sorry. Superman 1 million. Yeah. Uh, and in a costume designed by Morrison, because Morrison is a fairly accomplished artist in their own right, uh, at least decent enough to draw character designs, um, it's like the logo on Cal Kent, Superman 1 million's chest, is kind of like just two blobs, if I recall. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's it makes basically it remind it makes me think of this. Yes, and I wonder yeah. if it was yeah. I wonder if it was an idea that like um, Morrison had been toying with for a while. Like, if it'd be like like when you put text through Google Translate and do it like a hundred times and then translate it back into English, and you you know it, it, it's meaningless. It's kind of like that with the Superman logo. Like if you just kept kind of. Uh, if, uh, innovating and innovating and innovating, like end- endlessly kind of uh, expanding upon the logo and simplifying it. It's like after a million iterations, what you would get is just these two kind of coloured blobs on the yeah. chest, like the yeah, barest the, hint. The idea is if you draw an S around the blobs, you get the shape of the letter S, isn't it? But here yeah. it's very much a... a a corruption of the Superman logo, the traditional Superman logo. It's someone trying to recall it, but not going, oh, what does that look like? I can't remember. There's a red shirt, there's some yellow in there, and this is what comes out. So I think it's a very similar way of having it happen. It's trying to remember it is the same as having it translated a million times. And the other really daft meta thing I'd like to kind of um, bring up (laughs) in in, in, in my scholarly lecture here PJ, um, the idea of uh, a kind of young boy drawing comic characters in their bedroom is something that Morrison has returned to quite a few times. Yeah, uh, I'm thinking of like uh, Flex Mentalo or Flex Mentalo, however you pronounce it, which is perhaps one of the most autobiographical pieces that Morrison has done. Mm. And just talking about that kind of young child's experience of reading comics and then desperately trying to like recreate them, like maybe in like an exercise book or on like a crappy bit of paper you stole from your parents with like crayons and stuff. It's like this kind of primal experience in a way. And I I, I think of Flex, you know, having read Flex Mentalo in in, in later years and. Um, looking back on it here and Morrison kind of talking about in that book about how superheroes were kind of like a life changing part of their childhood. Yeah. And, and it just kind of, it evokes, I don't know. It, it just evokes that to me now here. Like the idea that I know that something weird is going on with the world here and Michael Haney is trying to remember something, but I think there's, there's something kind of 
maybe deeply personal to Morrison about a boy living in a world that doesn't seem right in some way and then trying to remember or trying to dream the thing that makes it more special. You know, it's like there should be lights in the sky. There should be sonic booms on city streets. It's like we do kind of live in the worst possible world (laughs) where we don't have those things. And so we have to draw comics, otherwise we'd go mad. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's a really nice reading on it. And and actually, it's what the uh, it... The entity, whatever it might be, is is playing off the fears of here. The people is, oh, God, a normal world without those guys? That sucks. And somehow, PJ, <laughs> somehow you and I survived. Although well, I guess we us. had to record a podcast, didn't we? <laughs> um, but sorry, PJ, I've talked I've talked enough. What's 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 that happening? Well, what's happening is I've also just counted the roll call. I said seven earlier. There's eight of them. My bad. Quiet, <laughs> apparently. PJ. Quiet, PJ. Spin, spin on. You could have got away with it. Anyway, well, no, because you know we'd have had an astute listener go in and go. Uh, PJ said seven, but that's eight characters, and I would have had to just go. Yeah, you're right. But this time your, I preempted it. That's what your, I've done here. Your brain was too occupied with all the immense amount of trivia you're going to lay on the table in a bit. So. So we cut from my mistake to Metropolis, where Superman, in his Clark Kent guise, in his uh, lovely stripy pyjamas, is trying to wake Lois Lane up, and she just won't. So he instantly goes, uh, all right, I'm going to get on the JLA telepathic alarm, put my Superman costume on, and fly out the window. Uh, Yeah, uh, you know, because he just gets to it. Uh, The clock says 9.30. Yes. Uh, is that morning or evening? I guess it is dark, so it's probably the evening. Yeah. Um, I don't really know. It's not clear, but it also doesn't really matter. Um, it's also such a wonderfully simple and sinister setup. Yes. Because, as we very quickly discover, as Superman flies down to the city streets below, everybody is asleep. All of Metropolis is sleeping, uh, apart from him. Uh, And as he uses his super hearing, you know, he says it's not just Metropolis. It's Gotham, Star City, even Toronto. Um, And yeah, and suddenly you just just get it all of a sudden, like this wonderfully, like, oh God, like this is weird. Like something bad is happening. It's very subtle. I like it. Yeah, I think think there's an element of these two pages of this is the first time Morrison has written... Classic Superman since New World Order. Oh, wow. And I do wonder if there's just an element of them having fun and reveling in the fact, oh, I can go back to the super hearing and the flight and the super speed. Like, the sequence of, of Clark changing into Superman and flying out of his apartment is is a classic sort of multiple image panel. And the close-up on the ear to denote the super hearing is something we haven't seen for a while. And... Some glorious images of Superman in flight as well. That I, I, I get the feeling both Morrison and Porter were just going, yes, we've got him back. <laughs> I just love how... I love it when powers are used in practical and interesting ways. Or or when, a, I don't know, something shines, at, shines beyond the obvious. And I just love how, in the span of two pages, we are given the setup yep. very simply and effectively. And Superman's reaction... Uh, he, it just shows why he's Superman. It's not because he can fly, and it's not because he's got super hearing. It's because he just instantly grasps the the severity of it. 
Yeah, I love um, that. He's just on the ball. He's also used as a shorthand for quite how bad things are, as he says the whole of Metropolis is asleep. Even I almost didn't wake up. And there you go. If something almost takes down Superman, <laughs> then you know you're in trouble. I do I do love that. He's super at everything. Even waking up. <laughs> but also, like, as, I, he, as he flies off, uh, you do get on the screen behind him in the middle of Metropolis a green star with an eye. And Superman is all business because he's, you know, he's able to uh, raise uh, Jean on the same telepathic bandwidth, I suppose. Uh, and. Uh, yeah, he's just like straight to business. He's just like sending out a telepathic alert, like who's who's awake and on duty. And we cut to Los Angeles. And PJ, I feel you're qualified to talk about this because I'd never seen this before. I mean, vaguely. <laughs> uh, you have read JLA Paradise Lost. Yes, for, once. For the, for the service of his podcast. And uh, thus you have seen this before. Briefly, it appeared right at the end of that series as Zariel's base of operations, the Airy, uh, which is where we cut to as Zariel connects with Superman saying, oh, I'm on the telepathic link, where are you? And Superman just says, uh, I'm in the Arctic Circle, I've checked on Steel, Plastic Man, Huntress and Oracle, and they're all asleep. Uh, and I, oh God, you see, right off the bat, I'm, I'm just gonna, I, I love this kind of crap. But when you go, okay, what if, here's, here's the pitch, Something sends the entire world to sleep. So then you'd ask questions. Okay, so which of the JLA are immune and why? And, of course, Superman, because he's Superman, and I yep. love that. And now it's like, well, Zoriel's awake. Why is he awake? And Zoriel's <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm always awake. <laughs> you know, I'm a guardian angel. I haven't slept since the dawn of creation. And a very nice line. I didn't want to miss any more dawns that good. Think about how much I could get done if I didn't have to sleep. <laughs> we, we, we were talking off air about the benefits of insomnia <laughs> and stealing extra hours from the clock. But yeah, I guess the kind of crippling tiredness would uh, would would weigh down weigh you down after a while. Yeah. So Superman flies to the airy and Zariel lets him in. And um, what I do quite like is you get this this panel of them actually both sort of leaving the airy. Uh, Superman's only had a brief stop. And it's a panel where Zariel looks quite... There's, there's some splendor here. He's got his wings spread as he leaves this giant tower that he's got erected. And Superman looks quite small in the panel, as if to say this is, this is something grand mm. that we're seeing here. Well, again, in the pages of um, in the pages of JLA, the uh, the oh, airy, eerie, what airy. Those? I yeah. forget how it's pronounced. I go with uh, airy, but airy. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, the airy isn't seen again actually. And I was going to ask you, PJ, can you recall? Is it is it a building in its own right in Los Angeles, or is it atop a building? I can't remember. I really can't remember. I'm afraid. Um, I don't think it. I don't know if it's. I think it might just hover above Los ah, Angeles. That I don't think sense. it's on top of a building. Um, it's not like the Sentry's Watchtower from yes, the Avengers. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, but Zoriel drops uh, another interesting fact that uh, apparently the thing, whatever caused everyone to fall asleep, it happened at three thirty, which is apparently the same time 
that the storms began to build. Mm. Oh, and there's something else. So there's one more interesting thing, and that thing is in Blue Valley, PJ. Yes, so we cut to Blue Valley, where the Flash currently is, and everyone in Blue Valley is awake. Literally everybody. No one is asleep at all, and Flash has checked house by house, and he's worried that people are going to start dying. So everyone in North America, except a few key members of the Justice League, which Zariel has also told us includes Batman, because I guess he doesn't sleep either. Um, (laughs) Everyone else in North America is asleep, except for this one town. Yes, and now we've been to Blue Valley before, PJ, in the pages. We have. Well, not in the main pages of JLA, but in JLA Secret Files and Origins 1, which was uh, episode 8 of the podcast. So uh, this is your moment to pause the podcast and go and re-listen to that episode, because we could do with the numbers. (laughs) Yeah, go. we'll we'll wait. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's just leave about 40, 45 minutes of dead air. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so yeah, Flash is on site. Um, okay, why do you... Oh, yeah, no, sorry, I'm going to hold that thought. Uh, but uh, yeah, so... And, and people are like flooding with streaks. There's like kind of um, a degree of panic. Uh, you know, there are policemen kind of trying to control the crowds and, uh, you know, shouting on megaphones and stuff. So yeah, uh, shit be going down as... As the kids say. I'm I'm sure they do. Uh, Flash also clues us into where Orion and Barda are because he says, can you keep calling New Genesis and ask them to come back, please? So they've clearly (laughs) been recalled for some reason and Flash thinks they could use them. Uh, Back on the Watchtower, and this is kind of fun, uh, apparently there is an intruder. And it's a nice little touch, but um, Superman and Zoriel step out of the same teleporter that I believe we first saw in Rock of Ages. Yeah, it's the one that Batman built to get onto um, the Injustice Gang satellite. Yes, it looks like a kind of upright square pool of black liquid. And I don't think we see it again in the pages of JLA, if I recall. If, if we do, it's just as throw away a panel as this. Mm, just a nice little touch. <laughs> but I, I, like I also like, though, that they have to walk through an X-ray scanner. Uh, yes, and we get a lovely... We get to see Superman skeleton, but we, we sadly do not get a shot of what's inside Zoriel, which would be quite interesting. You do um, get a, an X-ray of Jean that just appears to still be his flesh. He's, he's pointing his arm and you can just see behind Superman's skeleton what appears to be Jean's arm which again very nice touch probably doesn't mm. have need any yeah come to think of it I guess Zoriel not Zoriel Jean wouldn't really have any need of bones would he um, he's, he's protoplasm deep inside um, but hey we get uh, uh, we kind of get we realise very quickly I should say why uh, Jean has maybe been preoccupied um, well because Someone has... There's an intruder on the watchtower. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Jean yeah. says he hasn't been there long. He only appeared moments before Superman, but none of their equipment is registering him. Jean uses the words, he's completely abstract, and he seems to have come for our help. And then on the next panel, you can see Wonder Woman at the top of the panel just talking to a white-haired figure, saying, well, yeah, I moulded my daughter Diana from clay. How could you know that? As Kyle, who is sat on the edge of a sofa, is beckoning superman over 
So here's a question for you, PJ. Out of all these exceptional beings who managed to resist the sleep plague, uh, obviously you've got uh, Superman, Zoriel, you know, Jean, as we've discussed. You have Hippolyta, who is, you know, magical to some extent. Queen of uh, the Amazons. We have Batman, who one can imagine never sleeps. Uh, I think we're going to see a bit of Aquaman later. Is Kyle awake because he's the most caffeinated person on the planet? <laughs> okay, so I, I think there's one of three options here. Option one, he was in space on the True. watchtower at the time, and maybe this, this effect is confined to Earth. Two, the ring protected him. Or three, yes, he just drinks way too much coffee. <laughs> um. Yeah, I'd imagine the only reason Batman hasn't like put him on a gurney and started trying like to extract his blood for a cure is because it's nothing but coffee at this point. <laughs> he, he bleeds black. <laughs> um, yeah, and then we get a close-up of Superman and a kind of confused look on his face as he goes, have we met? Have we met before? And a voice comes from off-panel, perhaps at night. And as we turn the page... Oh, my God. <laughs> well, it's, it's the Sandman. Yep. Um, well, well, PJ. Y yes. Where do we begin? Okay. If you have not read all of Neil Gaiman's Sandman and your intention is to do so, you need to stop listening to this episode because we are about to spoil things. Yeah, we'll wait. We'll um, we'll leave like a, a two-year gap of audio now so you can go and read all that. You can read uh, it in two weeks. That's how long it took me. Okay, yeah, two weeks. Two weeks of two weeks of blank audio while you go and <laughs> you go and amend that. But but yeah, PJ, what what the, what on earth is going on here? So if you're now back from having read all of Sandman, or if you'd already read all of it, or you just aren't going to, that's fine. This is Daniel, the King of Dreams, one of the Endless, except Daniel isn't the original Sandman, that was Morpheus. But Morpheus died, and the child Daniel became the new Dream. Yes. But he sort of is also still Morpheus. It's a yeah. whole weird thing. It's a whole thing. So, in the... Well, again, it, it was... A Vertigo title. So Sandman yeah. was the uh, an imp you know part of Vertigo, an imprint of DC. So not technically, unless specifically stated, parts of DC continuity. Well, except it is because the first trade, um, Preludes and Nocturnes, you do have appearances from John Constantine, Martian Manhunter, and Doctor Destiny. Indeed, and I. Uh, it's funny because the first volume of Sandman is perhaps, and I think even the creators feel this way, maybe the weakest, if only because yeah. they were still trying to work out where it sat and what it kind of, what its relationship was to everything else, and then yes. it very much became its own thing. It did, it did, and you don't really get any of the DCU creeping into it again until mm. towards the end, I believe it is in the sixth volume, The Kindly Ones, I think, it, or it I, might be in The Wake, actually, it, the seventh. Definitely, definitely in The Wake. But certainly Superman and Batman appear. Yes, it's a fun scene where, uh, so 
yeah, so yeah, so if you the potted history is, and and these characters are so kind of revered by fans and and even the wider world to some extent that um, it I they are like gods. I think, that, and I mean that in a in a in a kind of cultural sense, like they are so respected that I don't think um, any any creator would overturn them now. But the endless are seven beings which define reality. They define existence, and they are more powerful than gods. They are everything. They are destiny, death, dream, destruction, desire, despair, and delirium. Thank God you remembered them all. Cause I- <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, they are siblings, uh, and they have existed since the dawn of time. And they all define an aspect of, of reality. And Morpheus is the third oldest. Uh, he is Dream. And while he is all-powerful, while they are all all-powerful, they can be killed. Yes. They are vulnerable in certain circumstances. And Morpheus, spoilers, does die in the events of the series. But Dream being a fundamental part of reality, cannot die. There is merely a new dream who is also Morpheus and is also partly Daniel, who was a young boy who was born in Dream's kingdom. So, yes, this is this is the Sandman. This is the Aniromancer. This is Morpheus. He's many things. He's also not many things. He's... Basically, the closest thing comics have produced to a god, I would say, a true god. And it's so bizarre for him to show up here in the pages of JLA. And I, I have to admit, when I first read this, I hadn't read Sandman. I didn't know much about that. I was vaguely aware of Sandman. I'd, I'd started reading Neil Gaiman, but I hadn't gone to the comics yet. I'd only read some of his novels. And... This was new to me, this character. So I think this is probably not the right way to first encounter Sandman. Um, But when you do then go back and read those Sandman comics, it is amazing how much of that Morrison is able to capture so well here. And Porter. It's got to be said, the artwork is absolutely stunning. This is just a beautiful rendition of Daniel, and you get these lovely sort of weird spirals in the background of the panel where he's first sort of steps forward, almost a splash page, not quite. Uh, But it's very Sandman, and I think also it's telling that he is the one character in the book that has his own font. Indeed. Yes, he has um, title case font, uppercase, lowercase... uh just kind of adding to this idea that he is somehow above and apart from the rest of the story. Um, It's the same font from the Sandman book. So, you know, while the JLA themselves all speak all caps in traditional superhero uh, fonts there, yeah, he's got the Sandman Vertigo font. And it's one of those little touches that I absolutely love. And and I I was thinking about, like, you know, continuity... And everything, and, and whether you know, I don't know, um, the the Sandman mythology was was technically in DC continuity or anything. But the beauty of the world that uh, Neil Gaiman, 
you know, and collaborators created is that Morpheus dream is also the king of stories because all stories come from dreams. And thus, in the true sense of like a god, can enter stories. So it's metafiction about as large as it gets, really, Mm. where even if Sandman wasn't in continuity, he's still here. You know, because this yeah. is a story and he's part of it. It's, um, yeah, it's kind of epic, actually. I mean, Preludes and Nocturnes also features Morpheus being held prisoner for, for decades by a sorcerer. And that's something that very much also ended up tying into Kevin Smith's run on Green Arrow and the resurrection of Oliver Queen. So certainly parts of it are definitely firmly within the DCU at this point. I should say I'm reminded of, uh, just going back to that cameo of uh, Jean... Batman and uh, Superman at the end of Sandman and they're all at uh, Morpheus's funeral and everyone's dreaming everyone in existence is dreaming to attend the funeral and um, they have a lovely little conversation where um, Superman says this is like that dream where you realize your entire life is a television show do you get that one and uh, and Batman goes of course doesn't everyone and Jean goes (laughs) I don't (laughs) (laughs) um i guess uh another fun little kind of tie-in to it all is um is that hippolyta who as you pointed out pj through weird time travelly kind of shenanigans yeah uh, screw you john Byrne. just have her fight with them originally (laughs) who uh who fought with the JSA during the World War II, fought alongside uh, a man called Wesley Dogs, yeah. I want to say, who was the original superhero called the Sandman. And um, there is a tie into that, the idea that uh, he was subconsciously inspired by Morpheus to become the Sandman. And while Wesley Dogs wore a gas mask, uh, Morpheus wore a helm made of uh, a dead gog's bones hmm. which um which very much is gas mask-esque in its design so there you go yeah and what i do like here as well is everyone else is sort of awed by who who daniel is who the sandman is even zauriel is like oh my you're one of the endless that we've heard whispers in heaven superman is all business so like who are whoever you are we need answers what's going on We've got stuff to deal with here. Yeah, and yeah, I think everyone's just kind of... Because, again, none of the characters know who Daniel is, you know, um, apart from us, the readers. Uh, But everyone has, like, a weird kind of, like, sense of familiarity with him because Mm. he's the king of dreams and everyone dreams. So it's like they've encountered him before, in a way. Um. But Daniel, uh, sorry, Daniel is kind of all business as well because, you know, he 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 knows what they're facing and he says, it is much older than you can imagine. It has been stalking this world and now, like a tiger, it strikes. It conquers first in dreams, then in reality. Yeah, and Superman just starts going, look, our loved ones are under threat here, Sandman. We need help. Kyle says it sounds like some kind of alien and then Daniel basically says all who sleep here dream its dream they will become first its slaves and finally its nourishment and the feast will attract others 
divisions of it. And yeah, it's this is Morrison has captured the Sandman voice so well. This is really, really good. <laughs> it is good. It is good. And it and it adds such a I mean, it's very easy to kind of load a story with like portentous dialogue to make it seem like something big and epic is coming. Uh, this actually lands. Like yeah. this does feel like something big and epic is coming. Um and also clearly, I mean Morrison very much enjoying this moment and and I think treating the character with a great deal of reverence. Like uh we get a nice little conversation between Zoriel and and um and Daniel and uh, a nice little reference to uh, the Silver City, which in the pages of uh, Sandman is where the angels resided. Hmm. And it's interesting because I think with that little statement, it kind of does a lot for Zoriel's origins and, and, and place in DC mythology. to Because the Silver City is a physical other dimensional place where the angels reside it kind of in a way takes the concept of an angel almost out of theology and puts it in the dc cosmology in a way yeah like they are it's a physical place where they live it's a place you can go yeah and yeah zariel does say what i thought morpheus Dream King was dead, and and this is where Daniel says, "Dream cannot die, nor am I Morpheus." And again, it's it's just, you know, I I wonder if if Gaiman was consulted on this script. And part of me thinks he must have been. But... I mean, you you'd have to, right? This is like a kind of you'd have you'd ask permission, wouldn't you? Even even if it's all owned by DC, it's a courtesy thing. And I know that most of the time that courtesy is not given with characters. It's all work for hire, this stuff, and anything you create belongs to the company. But you feel like right from the start with Sandman, DC have sort of been aware that this is Gaiman's creation. And there's been a certain amount of reverence to that that maybe other creators don't get with their original creations. And... You know, I've I've looked it up online. I cannot find any reference to whether any of this was run by Gaiman at all. Maybe he found out when this issue came out. Maybe he's never read this. I don't know, but it just it it feels like there must have been some kind of he at least read the script. I would love to know. I would be fascinated to know what the relationship is between Morrison and Gaiman because yes. um it, it, there was they're a dwindling generation now, sadly, but there were so many big influential names uh in, in that came came to a head in the eighties, you know, the so called kind of British invasion mm-hmm. uh with things like Vertigo. Uh very so influential. Uh and um you know, in many ways Alan Moore kind of led the charge. Uh, but you had these two kind of children of Alan Moore. You had Neil Gaiman and you had Grant Morrison. And Gaiman was the good child. <laughs> Gaiman was a friend of, of Moore, was coached by Moore, uh, got a leg up into comics because of Moore. Um, Morrison was the rival chaos magician who, in true punk stylings, basically kind of tore up a photo of Alan Moore on stage and, like, kind of pissed on his legacy and was like, move aside, granddad. I'm going <laughs> to... 
<laughs> you know, there's a new there's a new chaos magician in town. Uh, and I think um, they'd probably be really good mates if they could uh, put their feud aside. <laughs> but uh, their feud is also very entertaining, and I think they both know it to some extent. So I'd love to know if Gaiman and Morrison talk at any point. Yeah, yeah. But enough speculation. Sorry, yes. We got We've a lot got to rejoin the league at some point <laughs> after we're done geeking out over Sandman. <laughs> Uh, yeah, sorry, PJ. Uh, take 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 us home. Where are we? So, Zariel asks the question, do you know why everyone's asleep? And Daniel says, I heard a child calling from the depths of the dream in which he drowns, and he was calling you. I took pity on him, and I come here to bring you his petition. And I think this is a way where Daniel differs to Morpheus, because mm. I don't know if Morpheus ever was a child, but we know that Daniel was, and there's still has that innocence about him that Morpheus perhaps didn't have. Yeah, Morpheus could be a bit of a monster, to yeah. be honest. He's a very sympathetic hero, but he's he does monstrous things because he is he's not human in many ways. Um yeah, and this is a slightly kinder uh kinder dream. Um and and you know, as as Hippolyta kind of says, well, hey, look, you're the king of dreams. Hey, if if you've got to protect your kingdom, you're a god, whatever. Just do it. It's easy. And Daniel kind of points out, well, no, you know, I can't. Like, um, this is about what a child believes in. It's not about whether the my power. And and as he points out, he says, look, you know, the child believes that you will rescue him, even though he can barely remember what you are. It's like, if you can't rescue him, then, you know, uh, everybody will wake up under the power of it, basically. So, yeah, you have to fulfill a child's dream, basically. You are the League. You have to be heroes. You have to save him. Um, Yeah, so no pressure, I suppose. Yeah, you have to justify a child's faith in you or the world is ending. That's... Yay. (laughs) (laughs) And as Superman rightly asks, they don't know how do, how do they help the child, how do they fight whatever it is, and Daniel says, I'll take you into the dreaming, you basically just need to fight it back and, and justify this child's faith in you, you know, if, if you choose to, and Superman says, well then that's what we're going to do, we have to do that if that's what needs to be done. Yeah, and uh, it's nice because Daniel kind of knows what Superman is, but at the same time says that he shouldn't go alone. He said, you know, you'll need companions. It uh, It is strong and it is old. And, uh, you know, as the league kind of get ready, uh, so Kyle um, well, <laughs> wills into existence uh, some comfy chairs. Uh, <laughs> not as comfy. They don't look especially comfy, but he makes some nice chairs for everyone to sit on. Um, and Zoriel... Uh, voices a few objections. He says, "Like, look, we can't all go to sleep while the world is in crisis." Yeah, and and Jean says, "Well, you know, how long will this take?" And and Daniel just says, "As long as a dream takes." So Superman chooses his team. He wants Wonder Woman and Green Lantern in there with him. Which Kyle was like, "Me? Oh, cool." <laughs> I do a small thing, but I do love how Superman and many of his colleagues have so much more faith in Kyle's abilities than he does in himself. Yes. It's a very nice touch. Yeah, I think Kyle's getting there, but it's still a thrill for him to be chosen by Superman, you know? I think it always would be if you're Kyle. And also for me, I just think, like, you know, the 
these are the this is the superman and the green lantern i want interacting with each other yes like i love their relationship and yeah i'm, I'm sorry to all the hal jordan fangs i just don't think this would be as interesting if oh, Hal god, Jordan no. were here. Oh god, no. But we'll put a pin in that for the moment. Oh my god. Because yes. we now get another one of Superman's unknown powers. He says, I can induce sleep in myself. So he's got super laziness as well, apparently. He can just go go to sleep like that. But uh, uh Daniel throws sand in all their eyes and sends Wonder Woman, Superman, and Green Lantern to sleep himself. So okay, the league is effectively split into two. Uh we've got the dreamers and we've got the practical down-to-earth realists and who better to be among them than a very grumpy Batman who is uh, rocketing along on his on his motorbike uh, when he says, um, it happened at 6.30 Eastern time. I was on my way home to bed. <laughs> and ever, ever, ever the practical person, is, he's just right away thinking of the problems. He just yep. goes, okay, what are we dealing with? Uh, hospitals, that's bad. We got we got to protect the people in hospitals, uh, uh, and then uh, and then the worldwide economic collapse. That ain't good either. <laughs> Can I also just say though how cool this panel of him rocketing along on his bat bike is? Porter has just drawn this so damn well. I love it. It's it's just one of those fantastic Batman moments that that Howard Porter gets to draw sometimes. Yeah, and, and multitasking. You know, uh, you know, Batman conducting a, a mental meeting. While also just doing a, a a really sick kind of skid around a corner, um, and yeah, he's talking to another practical person, uh, John, and uh, they're both aware that, uh, huh, kind of a weird coincidence that uh, everybody in Blue Valley is still awake. Uh, hey, isn't that where we dealt with an alien parasite last year? Hmm, that's odd. So. I hadn't read Secret Files and Origins 1 when I first read this story. So I've done this all ass backwards. You know, I hadn't oh, read I'm, Sandman I and I hadn't read Secret Files and Origins 1. But <laughs> I was, weirdly, I was reading uh, JLA pretty much at the exact same time I was I was collecting Sandman as well, <laughs> both while I was at university. So yeah, it kind of, I guess it had an added resonance for me as well because they just weirdly coincided. I feel like probably a lot of people hadn't read Secret Files and Origins 1, because if you were reading through the trades, as as we both were, it wasn't collected. No, unless... certainly not at the time. I think yeah. some later editions have it, but... But it's kind of key. <laughs> it's a very important little story, and I, and I read it for the first time when, 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 we did, when we did it on the podcast, and I was like, this is a good story. Like, I've never, I've never seen it before. It's great. But Batman says to Jean, look, I need something from the Watchtower trophy room. And Jean says, okay, I'll sort that out for you. But first I have to stop all these planes from crashing. Uh, yeah, he said, I may be a bit busy for the next few minutes as we see like three jumbo jets just kind of like above the city. Uh, smash cut to, uh, well, on the one hand, uh, Jean standing next to three safely, safely, safely kind of landed Jets. Also, another cool heroic Jean pose. I think Porter's knocking this issue out of the park, isn't he? He's just oh, so damn good. Yeah, again, that dip in the Lazarus pit did did <laughs> everyone good. Um, and we get a fun little um, shot of uh, Zoriel on his way to uh, the JLA trophy room. 
And we also get like a, a really weird kind of golden caption that says, uh, like a diamond turned inside out, forever reflecting the infinite glory of the presence, a hymn without beginning or end. And uh, Jean is like, um, what the hell was that? <laughs> what did I just hear? And Zariel says, oh, sorry, that was my overmind, my angel mind. It just leaked in because I'm a bit excited. Sorry. <laughs> As he picks up uh, a giant glass jar containing, um, well, it's a starfish. It is, it is the parasite that was on the Flash's face in Secret Files and Origins 1. And I love the look on Zariel's face as he sort of holds it, arms outstretched in front of him, eyes wide, and sort of going, "What? why does Batman need this? This is weird. Yeah, um, I guess he wasn't a leaguer at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we've seen this before, certainly, having having read, now read, JLA Secret Files and Origins. Um, and then we cut to uh, The Flash, and we get quite a fun little scene here where Flash is basically going like uh, so hey yeah I I immediately thought of the weird little parasite thing and you know obviously hey it's weird that you know everyone in Blue Valley was is still awake and I realise that like the only people still awake are those who were in direct contact with these parasites uh, you know and uh, I went and got it from the trophy room and uh uh, and he's just and, you, and he's handing it over to uh, Batman, and uh, he's kind of uh, you realize he's almost apologizing, yeah, because he's all he's basically kind of I don't want to say solved it, but he's got to the point kind of before Batman did, and he's going like, uh, is everything okay? I mean, like I'm not stepping on your toes, am I? I mean, you're the detective. I I just kind of figured. <laughs> Oh, Batman's, we're all adults here, Mr. West. (laughs) (laughs) A very funny little moment. And it's, I love that in this, it's a, it's a dark story, this. This is a very dark, big story, apocalyptic, and Morrison still finds moments to have a little bit of humour between the characters. Yeah, um, as he also gets his bat dissecting kit out <laughs> and uh, pins out this little green, I say little, this big green starfish thing to start cutting it open. Um, but meanwhile, PJ, we cut to the dreaming. Where Daniel's face just floats in the sky above the three leaguers who arrive in, in a very pleasant looking field with a small, very small town just beside it, and Superman says it reminds him of Smallville, and Hippolyta says it reminds her of the Meadows of Themyscira, and Kyle just says, am, am I dreaming this? Yeah, and it's, again, going back to like that kind of Twilight Zone kind of vibe, I mean, while it is a, you know, it looks like a kind of quaint little country town in America, um, with the exception of Daniel's massive face kind of filling the sky, the sky is very ominous. Like there's constantly like kind of black storm clouds and oh yeah, always a creepy image for me is like kind of leaves filling the wind, mm. filling the the air. You get a sense of like the wind. Yeah, it's kind of like a storm's coming. It's um it's creepy. Something's not right here. But now we we get a moment that the very first time I read this, I thought, oh, 
Yes. And it's just stuck with me ever since where Daniel says to Kyle, your wishing ring may prove the most effective weapon here, Green Lantern. And Kyle just goes, wishing ring? Never thought about it like that. And I went, it, it bloody is, you know. It... <laughs> And I, I love it. I love that little moment so much because it just sums up Green Lantern's powers in two words. Yeah, and I mean, you you said PJ that this is this is possibly like your favorite story in the entire run. Mm. Uh, I've yet to commit. However, I feel like this page might be one of my favorite moments possibly ever. I yeah. love this interaction here it is incredible yeah so we get a, a bit more business now from superman and wonder woman that we're inside the dream we've got to go after this thing what rules are going to apply here and Sandman just says well is there a rule book for the waking world you've you've been here before and they sort of realize our powers might not work properly we've just got to do what we can and then kyle says okay so where are the bad guys and what do we do and Daniel just says, why do you hesitate each time? This man, Jordan, the one who wore the magic ring before you, why does he overshadow all of your thoughts and actions? And and, and Kyle turns as in the background we see Wonder Woman struggling to lift a boulder as her kind of strength leaves her. And Kyle turns to to uh, Daniel and he's and he, a little confused. It's like he didn't realise his thoughts were leaking. And he goes, well, I was just thinking about, yeah, what is this to do with Hal? And you get this kind of, you see Daniel standing on this hill under under a tree and he's all in shadow and he just goes, you will surpass him. You already know what he could never learn. And Carl goes, yeah, I mean, Hal Jordan was the best. Everybody knows that. Everyone keeps telling me that no matter what I do. I met him, the guy was a star. What could I possibly know that he didn't know? And we just get this incredible shot of Daniel with like one eye kind of blazing like a star. And he goes, fear, you will surpass him. Oh, it just gives me shivers. And this is why Morrison gets characters. <laughs> this is, in oh, I loved this moment and it, yeah. it made me love Kyle all the more. Like again, a character who faced a lot of resistance when he was introduced, you know, people did not like Kyle. Because he yeah. wasn't Hal Jordan. And and I feel like this is Morrison setting out their stall. This is Morrison saying, I am Team Kyle. Kyle is Green Lantern. You have to accept that. Kyle is a better Green Lantern than Hal Jordan because Kyle is more of a character than Hal mm. Jordan. And to put those words into the mouth of, and again, a tricky one, Sandman, though not necessarily the Sandman people love because it isn't Morpheus. Oh, wow, of course, yeah. But it's still Dream. And to put those words in into the mouth of such a beloved character as well i do wonder how many people that rubbed up the wrong way but for kyle fanboys like us <laughs> well again like there is almost no higher power in the dc universe and to have that character say it 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 does add weight to it and i think you'd have to have a heart of stone not to 
get more on board with Kyle. If you if the pages of JLA haven't already made you love him, like, and also again, I I you you're wise to point it out, PJ. I I'd never picked up on the kinship between Daniel and Kyle. Yeah, yeah, they're both replacements. Yeah, and yes, it's a bit different with Daniel because the it's all very nebulous how much of Morpheus still exists within Dream and how much of Dream is Daniel. And, you know, it, it's 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 difficult to get into and we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about it. But at the end of the day, he is not the original Sandman. And this is... It's a wonder. It's a wonderful read on a character, you know. It's. It's. I don't want to get too meta about it, but just to say, there was a time when to, for a character to be to have no fear, was the pinnacle of heroism. You know. I mean, Hal Jordan is a is a hero cut from a certain cloth. You know, it from a certain a very... time. A very 60s idea, wasn't it? You've got Green Lantern who couldn't feel fear because that was the way his powers worked. Daredevil was the man without fear. You know, it was it was very much a these are manly men kind of a time. And then, yeah, just it's such like it feels if it, it feels, you know, religious, for lack of a better word, to hear it coming out of Daniel's mouth. It feels kind of like something bigger, deeper, from like a, a more meaningful level of reality. He says, you already know what he could never learn. And it just, it shows the limitations of, of Hal, and it shows how all these things that Kyle considers his weaknesses are actually, you know, his greatest strengths. Like, he's human, he's flawed, you know, because he fears things. He he feels them more profoundly. He cares. It's and yeah, it's, it's like it's a it's a it's like it's a prophecy. It's like you will surpass him. And it's one of my biggest issues with Green Lantern Rebirth is that it effectively completely undoes this. Yes, I don't. Yeah, I feel they didn't treat him right because no. of this. I, I do. I do feel he, Kyle got <laughs> Kyle. Kyle. Kyle was was mistreated basically. Yes, but he will always be Green Lantern in our hearts. And as long as we keep revisiting the past, PJ. Kyle is the JLA cast Green Lantern and always will be. Um which is why <laughs> which is why when when we when we reach the end of this series, we'll burn the podcast. <laughs> we'll we'll cement up the door to the tomb and and it will all be perfect forevermore. Um but sorry, PJ, I keep rambling. what's what's happening? Well, we uh, we turn the page and and Michael Haney is is he's still trying to remember Superman, the name Superman, the symbol, but it knows. And this is where a police car with a starfish on its bonnet arrives, and then Daniel appears in his room and says, "It is not the absolute ruler of this country," and he picks up the picture of Superman and waves a hand, and the logo is transformed into the S that we all know and love as Daniel just says believe and you will be saved and you have this ominous kind of terrifying moment where somebody's coming up the stairs and you just get these captions going like but it's just his imagination 
Everybody always says he has too vivid an imagination. Everybody knows he's a weird kid. It knows. And it's like a nightmare. It's like, oh, yeah, it's kind of spooky. And and then the door opens and and you don't you don't see his dad's face. You only kind of see him from behind. But it's, oh, God, it is like a, a classic horror movie because it's like dad's voice sounds like funny and thick, like he's talking through jello, like it's two voices at the same time. And and he's got a jar with him, PJ. Yeah, and he says, I bought you something from the pet store. And as we turn over the page, we see one of the green parasite creatures in the jar. And there's also one on Mikey's dad's face and the cop's faces. And Mikey finds himself pinned to the wall. And they say, nobody's coming, Michael. There's nobody here but it, forever and ever. And then Michael's eyes just drift to the p- picture he drew that Daniel has now altered, and he just opened his his mouth, and one quiet little word comes out, and that word is Superman. Oh, it's incredible. Oh, so, so good. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. And this is why Morrison gets Superman, like, so much. It's not about whether Superman can lift 200 tongues or 400 tongues or what his current stats are. It's it's what a kid believes Superman to be. Superman is the idea of a hero. Superman can do anything. So as as Daniel rightly said, this isn't about power. This is about a child's belief. And yeah, it's profound. It's a daft little comic, and it's very profound. This is why yeah. Superman is so meaningful. Um, and and yeah, and Superman hears it. You know, uh, two hundred and fifty miles away. Apparently, he hears. Um, with the last of his kind of dwindling superhearing, he he hears he hears Michael speak his name. He he just has enough power left to have one glance with his telescopic vision. Says even my super sight is failing, but I great Scott because he's Superman. He has to say that. <laughs> and Wonder Woman asks what he saw, and then you just see the what he saw, which is an army of people with parasites on their faces, and then again just pure Superman as he says. We have no powers, there are millions of them, and there's a child in there who needs us to save the world. Let's go. Because he's Superman. <laughs> <laughs> this is what he does. Um, so we cut back to reality, uh, where Jean is in high orbit above the planet, and uh, as he briefly mentioned, although I, I failed to I failed to comment on it, uh, he is. We had a lot a, to talk about. We had a lot to talk about. Um, he's he's attempting like a uh, a high a high altitude um, scan of the planet to work out what the hell is going on, and he mentions that he he thought he felt something move, something big and slow on the edge of consciousness. Yeah, and and Wally, who's back on the watchtower now, and in a nice little touch, has taken his mask off and is wiping sweat off his brow. Is just saying, look, Jean, be careful. You can't breathe in space. And and Jean just says, I can hold my breath, Flash. (laughs) (laughs) And he says the clouds are dispersing. You know, we're cutting back and forth, but you get the sense that Jean is getting closer to something. Oh, and Aquaman's alive. He's here. And um, he apologises for not having checked in sooner. Uh, he had to, well, one can imagine, stop a boat from running itself aground um, and saving yeah, the crew. 
he stood in front of a massive tanker while the crew are just asleep on the, the ground behind him. As he says, he's in Nova Scotia and he can confirm though there's a presence in the ocean north of where he is, but it's big and it's causing the storms. Yes, because lest we forget, uh, Aquaman is also telepathic. You know, easy to overlook sometimes. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, Flash and Zoriel up in the Watchtower are reviewing old footage, which happens to be of Flash himself from a year prior with a parasite on his face, saying the words, I am the probe, he is the conqueror. And so Flash, who is also, you know, quite a, a quick thinker, is starting to piece it together. He says, well, if that was the probe, what was it looking for? And they all start to realise that the storms are clearing over Canada. All these kind of pieces are coming together. And we get a, a huge close-up on Jean's face, like right into his eyes, which are wide. Just giant red orbs in the middle of his face. As Wally asks, do you have a visual contact? And Jean says... I can see it. And apparently now, uh, Zauriel warns that there are dozens of them coming out of nowhere. They're gigantic. The Earth is being invaded. And then Jean says, Moons of Mars. We flip over the page. Tiny figure of Jean <laughs> flying above the Earth says, I can see it. And there is a measured on the scale of continents. There is a colossal starfish in the ocean above Canada and I confess my geography is not good enough to be able to name the exact body of water that is uh, but yeah it's it's about the size of a considerable chunk of Canada yeah. and it's looking at Jean right at him and oh my god PJ that's the end of the issue <laughs> It, Possibly it, the most ominous issue of JLA. Like, the building of tension throughout. It's astounding. And for that reveal on the last page, I mean, obviously when I first read this, it was in this trade, so I read, I read it all in one go, this story. But yeah, for it to end there on the reveal of that giant... It's Starro! Come on, we all know that now. That's a giant Starro! Okay, it's, now Pete. And 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 we've we've talked about I think we talked about this to some extent when we did JLA Secret Files and Origins. Yeah. But I've got to ask PJ, given culturally where we were in September nineteen ninety eight when this came out, is this the first post crisis appearance of Scarrow? No. Uh I've done a little research since then. There was a late 80s, like 88, 89, I think, issue of Justice League where Starro appeared, or like the smaller Starros as parasites, but it was still coloured like Starro from the Justice League's first appearance, the sort of grey and purpley oh, colours, really? as were the smaller parasites on the JLA's faces. I haven't read the actual issue, but certainly this is the first appearance of a Starro of this scale. Uh, I think ever. Maybe and this, but yeah, that reveal and as you say, the build to it as well. This 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 issue is so atmospheric. Mm. It's just 
you it's palpable you can feel it as you're reading it just gets under your skin i'd almost compare it to the two-parter zariel storyline when he first appears because again Mm. that was filled with atmosphere and tension in there as well and just just shows what team morrison and porter are when when they work together they can just they can oh they can give you shivers it it's funny isn't it because like um with the the story with 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 uh, Zariel, where Zariel was introduced, and and you know the um, angels attacking uh, uh, Los Angeles, um, you know revisiting it for the podcast and realizing what a tight two part of that was, and how it felt like an action movie, mm. like in the best possible way, and this one almost feels like a horror movie. Oh, definitely. Yeah, like. It's capturing a capturing a completely different kind of vibe and doing it so well. Like this, it just kind of drives home like why. And I, you know, no disrespect to the preceding, you know, kind of issues from from guest creators, but this is kind of why Morrison was was headlining DC's biggest title. You know, because this is what like at the peak of their game. This is how you write thrilling superhero comics. Like this is incredible. Yeah, and it's it's audacious as well because it's not a you know we've already hinted at it with a bit of dialogue saying we need to get Orion and Varda back here. So it's not a spoiler to say that Orion does come back in the next issue. So this is Morrison and Porter playing with Starro, the Sandman, and the New Gods. All at the same time, and it working. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, because there's a certain weight to it all. Like it feels kind of there's that gravitas, and we talked about like the building sense of dread. And I think again, having Daniel here and having, um. You know uh, the, the cosmic element, which we're going to see a little more of in the next issue. But you can see what Morrison loves and cares about, and and you start to see some of that meta narrative around Superman, which informs so much of Morrison's work. The idea mm. that like superheroes are almost like some kind of transcendental component of human culture. Which again, it, 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 I find it very moving personally. Morrison's take on idea of what superheroes represent—the idea that like all superheroes want to do—I mean, yes, of course, you can always say, well, they're daft people in tights punching each other. It's daft. It's silly. But they're fundamentally they're here to save us. Yeah, it's 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 kind of profound in a way the way Morrison reveres that idea and. And it's it's never more apparent than in this story, like what it actually represents. It's uh, it's a powerful story. I, it, 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 yeah, it, it leaves you kind of feeling something at the end. It, there's a weight to it. I, I love it. I think it's also telling that Morrison did some amazing stuff with Electric Superman, but this is Morrison's first story with Classic Superman back, and they make it about what Superman means. Mm. I, I I don't know. I feel like he like they they did that on purpose. Oh yeah, because the irony being is, as much as we love Electric Blue Superman, you couldn't do this no. with Electric Blue Superman. No, no way. 
yeah, and it's a reason why you couldn't do it with any other of the the countless Superman imitators that the comics have spawned. You know, this isn't Supreme Apollo Sentry. You know, this is this is Superman. This is the original. This is the, the big blue. You know, this is this is why he's Superman. And yeah, again, for a daft story about people in tights punching each other, you know, this means something to me. I I love this story. It's it's yeah. tremendous. Yeah, it really is. Oh man, it just oh, so good, so so good. <laughs> Is is this where your love of Starro began? Yes, definitely. Mm. This this is my first encounter with Starro. I didn't even have a name for it. They don't call it Starro in this or in the next issue. I I believe it's when you get to a Starro profile in Secret Files and Origins, one of them, maybe two, maybe three, that it's actually called Starro. But this two-parter is where my love of Starro comes from. And where does... Where does Starro or the Star Conqueror, however you want to refer to it, where does it kind of sit nowadays? Because it's obviously, it's like an idea that is almost too good. And it's been through several revisions. We've had, obviously, the original Starro, which is kind of purpley grey with kind of long, tenderly kind of arms. And I, I have to confess, I'm not massively familiar with how that Starro operated. I know it was very early kind of League story, but... I think it was just a big monster from space when it first appeared, if I remember correctly. Although I do like how in JLA Avengers, uh, <laughs> Busick and Perez have it appearing in its classic form, but with the uh, Porter-designed version of the smaller parasitical Starros that sit on faces. I, I liked the mix there. Yeah, and I think we've we've talked about it, but and we're probably going to have to cover it. Uh, but I loved that moment in JLA Avengers, yeah, where we see the Avengers fighting Scaro. I mean, yeah. that that's just radical. <laughs> you know, there's certain there's always certain like um, tropes which I think you can kind of wheel out in, uh, in in a superhero comic, and I do feel like the uh, the zombie horde or like the infectious kind of mind control sort of plague thing is one and it can take many different forms but i think having a giant starfish slapped on your face is possibly the greatest one i've ever seen yeah it's probably up there (laughs) 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 but yeah i know i don't know how much has been done with starro since then i know that there is or was recently um Batman had a little Starro in a jar called Jaro, uh, who actually joined the Justice League, uh, put on a little Robin costume, and it was very silly. And I kind of like it was endearing though as well. I kind of <laughs> liked it, but I don't know if they had a fight with a big Starro before that or, or where that came from. But quite frankly, no one has ever or will ever do a better Starro story than this two-parter. No, to be honest, I think this is uh, this is Morrison kind of salting the earth. Um, Kind of like they did with um, uh, the Crime Syndicate, if I'm honest. Mm. I think yep. uh, Earth 2 was the, the quintessential, perfect, and only Crime Syndicate story that could be told. And uh, yeah, this is practically the most perfect Scaro story, and thus making any future thing doomed by comparison, I'd say. I also do 
really like it as a Sandman epilogue mm. in a way. I when I did my last reread of of Sandman, which was uh, I think towards the end of 2019, when I finished volume seven, I read this two part story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because particularly there are you know there's a couple of moments coming which do feel like a, a coda to, mm. to Sandman, don't they? Yeah. Like a nice little a love letter in a way. It's it's nice because it it yeah it's it's very much a JLA story, but it, it also it shows you how Daniel works compared to Morpheus, but still feels of a whole with everything else that's happened in Sandman. And I yeah I just I don't understand how Morrison writes Daniel so well. It doesn't quite make sense to me, but they do. And and I think written very respectfully. Oh yeah. And to the point where I I do not know if Morrison and Gaiman spoke. I, I do not know if they are close, even though they are contemporaries. Um even if it was not discussed, I would like to think that Gaiman would have been very happy with this rendition because I think yeah. it shows an immense amount uh, amount of respect from one creator to another, the how 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 Daniel is treated here. Yeah, and this this was a couple of years after Sandman finished, wasn't it? So, you you've probably got a better idea than than I do there, PJ. I know we talked about it briefly off air where we were trying to work out. This is uh, September ninety eight. Yeah, um, Sandman ran for sixty something odd issues. Uh, let me just no, I'm going to look this up right now. I can to find the back this com- to the back computer to yeah Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Talk among uh, yourselves, listeners. Yep, I'm just uh just on Wikipedia. Oh god, there's too much on Wikipedia. There's too much on Wikipedia. There we go. Sandman. So we're talking like 75 the... issues from January 89 to March 96. So yeah, March just over 96. 2 years. Wow. So again, it's not like you know, it's we're not talking like a decades gap. We're not talking, you know, 20 year gap. It, you know, people would still have been talking about Sandman as a as a as a relatively current thing. Yeah. You know, so it's funny, isn't it? It would have seemed like a, it wasn't all sunshine and roses ahead, but it probably seemed like quite an optimistic time in comics. Ninety seven. You know, we Marvel and DC both had troubles in the nineties, financial and otherwise. But you know, you had these kind of big, bold, colourful triumphant series being put out around this time you had um you had jla over at dc and and you had uh busick and perez's run on avengers mm. you know it was a a kind of a, a return to glory and and with all the um critical acclaim that sandman received you know just before that you know why not have you know, if he's going to appear anywhere, and if he's going to be treated so well, why not have Daniel appear in JLA? Yeah. Like it was an optimistic time; anything was possible. Yeah, exactly, and it it feels as well to me like it's not something Daniel wasn't put in the book to sell it. 
it's done because it's the story that Morrison wanted to tell. Mm. It's not like I don't think they marketed this as guest starring the Sandman. I imagine this was a massive surprise for people when the issue first came out when they first read it. Because I, I don't think as I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't marketed as "Hey, we're putting Sandman in the JLA book." <laughs> the epic crossover that nobody saw coming. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I, I get that vibe from it as well. It, it's just this is the way this story had to pan out. Yeah. Um, yeah. God. Yeah. I mean, Morrison really did have the best toys in the play pit to play. You know, to play around with here is wow, incredible. <laughs> I mean, PJ, is there anything more to say at this point? Can we do the next issue now? Uh, no, if only because... <laughs> no, uh, if, no, PJ. If only because <laughs> the the mind is willing, but the body is, is physically shattered and I need to lie down for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if we really have... You know, reach the end. I, I guess I should say a, a massive uh, thank you to Gav, uh, Gav Mitchell for drawing our, um, our our wonderful cover artwork, and to Elliot Red for composing and performing our uh, stupendous theme tune, Justice. And if uh, if you enjoy hearing uh, PJ and I wax lyrical about Scarfish, uh, superheroes, and otherwise, you can find us on social media, and uh, our details are in the description. So PJ, I mean. After that epic emotional ride, I I I I think it's only fitting that you give us uh, an epic emotional sign off in uh, in the style of uh, uh, in the style of your an accomplished writer such as such as yourself. I'll see you in your dreams. 